This episode of Full Stack Radio is brought to you by Hired. If you're a developer, designer, or product manager who's looking for a new opportunity, head over to Hired's website and create a profile to start receiving offers from companies who need what you do. If you accept a job through Hired, you'll receive a $2,000 signing bonus, and if you sign up through Hired.com slash Full Stack Radio, they'll double that signing bonus to 4000 bucks. So thanks again to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio podcast where I talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm Adam Wathen, as always, and today I'm here with Taylor Otwell, the creator of the Laravel framework and a number of other interesting projects that hopefully we'll talk about. How's it going, Taylor? Good. How are you? Really good. Excited to talk to you. So recently you launched a new SaaS app, Envoyer. Do you mind kind of giving me the pitch for that and telling me what it's all about? Sure. So Envoyer is a PHP deployment platform or tool where uh, basically you sign up and you you link it to your GitHub or Bitbucket and it can deploy your PHP code out to your servers uh, with zero downtime. That's basically the real, the real kicker is the zero downtime part where we basically pull down your code into a releases directory and then run all your deployment hooks or whatever you want to do. And then at the last second, we have a, a current directory that's actually a symlink into the latest release. So we just swap the symlink over to the latest release, which gives you a nice uh, zero downtime deployment with PHP. So it's all nice. You get pushed to deploy and can add whatever hooks you want. So it's it's pretty sweet. Yeah, that's awesome. What were you doing before you started using it? Like I'm guessing you had uh, some situations come up that prompted you to want to build a tool to make this easier. So what was the manual process like for you before when you were managing something with multiple servers? So before I was just using Laravel Envoy, uh, not to be confused with Envoyer, with, with Laravel Envoy is kind of like a um, sort of like fabric if someone's familiar with Python where you can define these tasks that you want to run on any number of servers and you can actually if you want to set up a kind of zero downtime deployment thing with Envoyer however it's just more kind of manual work that I didn't really want to put in and so I wanted to kind of automate the process because with even like Laravel 4 which is, which is my other service I really need to deploy that with zero downtime because at any moment a push could come in. And if, I, if I'm if i not up, I could lose like that push that came in from GitHub to deploy someone's project. So it was pretty important that I got a zero downtime setup. And then I thought, hey, this would be a cool service and kind of went from there. That's awesome. So I know uh, you've been talking about this as being something that applies to kind of a bigger audience than Forge did originally, which I mean, Forge works for a lot of stuff, right? But it's kind of catered to uh, provisioning a server to handle Laravel applications. I know you can spin up like, uh, you know, craft instances or WordPress or whatever. So it works with a bunch of other stuff. But if you're building a Laravel app, then that is definitely the way you want to provision your server because it's really tuned specifically for what you're doing there. So I know with Envoyer, um, kind of the pitch is that you can use this to manage, you know, deployment for basically any PHP application because it's not expecting you to be working in a certain way. What has the uptake been in the PHP community at large? Are a lot of people that aren't in the Laravel community excited about it so far? Yeah, I've gotten a few people that aren't that don't use Laravel using Envoyer. I don't really know how big that percentage is, but I feel like it's it's doing pretty well. I, I don't remember how well Forge did like in the first couple of weeks, so it's hard for me to judge. But uh, yeah, I mean, people seem to like it and, um, you know, I've been using it a lot myself, so I'm pretty excited about it. And um, and, the, and one cool thing about Envoyer, it was really a good opportunity to dog food Laravel 5 because there was kind of a lot of structural changes um, or app structure changes in Laravel 5 that I wanted to prove like in a real world app how they would feel. And Envoyer was a really good testing ground for doing all that because I used you know, a lot of queued jobs and, or what the, the directory is called commands in Laravel five, but I, I mainly use it for queued jobs. Um, and then a lot of events and of course, a lot of eloquent and all that good Laravel stuff. So, uh, it was a good kind of proving ground. Yeah. That leads me to another question. I was going to ask you kind of what is the tech stack overall with, um, Envoy. I know Forge was, you know, Laravel backend of course, and then a bunch of angular kind of sprinkled in on the front end. What are you doing on Envoy? Envoyer is very much uh, the same. Basically, it's it's Angular um, as my client side framework, which that's not because I've like tested a lot of other JavaScript frameworks and I'm like this JavaScript guru that thinks Angular is the best. It's literally the only thing I know, so it's basically the only choice I have in terms of my front end stuff. So, 
Uh, it's Angular and then, of course, Laravel. Um, I use Eloquent. I use a very kind of like rapid development style with Laravel. I don't do a lot of, I don't do doctrine. I don't do um, a lot of like command bus stuff. I, as a matter of fact, I don't do any command bus stuff. It's pretty straightforward. I even do most of like my validation just right there in the controllers with the validate request trait in Laravel 5. And I think I have three or four um, form requests classes that are actually like a little bit more complicated um, validation scenarios. But other than that, it's really straightforward. And then I have a handful of unit tests um, to test the whole thing. But yeah, I mean, a pretty standard Laravel stack and and nothing too complicated, really. So on the uh, Angular side, how are you using Angular? Are you still doing all your routing server-side through Laravel? Yeah, I still do all my routing server-side through Laravel. I don't even know if that's the best way to do it, but... Um, it, for me, when I first got started with forge, it was, it was easier for me to grok angular. If I, if I just did, um, the routing on the Laravel side and just did a controller per page in the angular side, and it, it just helped me get started faster. And I just kind of fell into that pattern with, um, Envoyer again. Um, though I, I can see the, some benefit in terms of doing your routing on the client side. It's just been so easy for me. And I kind of have like this flow of building the apps this way that I've gotten really fast at. So I just stuck with it, you know? Yeah. Um, are you using any other cool services or tools with uh, Envoyer? Yeah. So one one tool I use both on Forge and Envoyer that's one of my favorite tools is, of course, uh, pusher.com, which that abstracts away um, a lot of WebSocket stuff for you. So that's how that's how Forge and Envoyer kind of have that live updating, like when you deploy. And if you're sitting on Envoyer, you can see that the site automatically updates to say that your code is deploying. That's how all that works is through Pusher. And that's just like so simple to set up. I mean, it's like three lines of PHP and a couple lines of JavaScript and it's all ready to go and everything works perfectly. And a lot of people are like, Oh, why don't you run your own, uh, socket.io server or my own ratchet server? And it's really just cause pusher is so just like so simple that I don't even have to think about it. And I don't have to set up any stupid supervisor, uh, configuration or anything like that. So it's really nice. I've never used Pusher, like not to get off track on the stuff that you've been working on, but how does it work exactly? Like you're not listening for WebSocket stuff on your server. Do they work as kind of a middleman where they create a WebSocket connection to them and then kind of send just hit your API endpoints or something? Or So this is how I assume it's working just from the outside and not knowing that much about how all this stuff works under the hood is I'm guessing they are a middleman, like you're saying, and I have a WebSocket connection to them from my JavaScript or whatever. And then I I can push to what they call channels, which would kind of be like a Laravel, like events, event names or something like that. I can push to that from my server side using their SDK. So I can raise an event on the deployment channel for a certain uh, project ID. And then on the client side, I, they will send me that event or whatever, and I can update the client side code. Gotcha. So basically is, how it works. Is it mostly just, um, one way communication? Like obviously the WebSocket is two way, but are you listening for WebSocket events from the client or are you just using it to push WebSocket events from the server to the client? I only use it from the server to the client. So basically my setup is I'll, sometimes I push like the whole um, eloquent, like JSON representation straight through the socket. And then other times I will just send like a refresh event and have it actually, it receives that event and then pulls from the server fresh data. You know what I mean? So I don't, sometimes I don't actually serialize the whole object and sometimes yeah, I yeah. do it. It just depends on the scenario. You just kind of send an event that says, Hey, ask for the latest data. Cause something's changed. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's a really fast way to get started with it. Yeah. I know with like WebSockets, you kind of have to define your own protocol of how you want things to communicate, right? Or does pusher guide you into doing it a certain way? Like, are you just, can you just send raw strings basically? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. I can send to me, pusher is very much Laravel events, except it bridges the client and the server. But as far, but I say it's like Laravel in events in the sense that you can send anything you want, basically any payload across the event. And so I usually do like, for example, an eloquent, I would do like deployment to array or whatever, and their SDK will turn an array into JSON for me. And then I just can, I can catch that on the client side and push it into a um, array in my JavaScript. That's pretty awesome. So one thing that I've 
kind of run into when I've been building Laravel applications using Angular the same way, because that's kind of the way that I'm most comfortable to, like, I prefer to do the routing and stuff on the, the server side, because it's just where I feel productive and trying to do everything on the client is just a, a whole new world, right? But I haven't really landed on a great way to organize that stuff as far as what are endpoints that are serving HTML? Uh, what are endpoints that only Angular is using? Is Angular just using you know your cookie-based authentication, or is it working as like a real API client? Or uh, you know what I mean? So, what has your yeah. strategy kind of been for trying to keep all that stuff organized? So, I did something kind of interesting on Envoyer. It's a little bit different than Forge in that. So, Envoyer, in terms of like HTML pages, there's only like maybe like six or seven, right? There's like the marketing page, the login page, and then like the project detail, the deployment detail, and like your user profile, and maybe like one other screen, but that's basically it. So what I actually did was in Laravel, I created a controller called Screen Controller, S-C-R-E-E-N, mm-hmm. Screen Controller. And that just has those six or seven routes. So in my Screen Controller, I have like show login form, show project detail, and the the views are not related at all, but I don't care because these are my only these are the only things that are throwing back HTML and everything else is I actually have it under controllers slash API namespace. Okay. Everything else basically just returns JSON. And th- those six or seven uh, HTML rights are all in that screen controller because I, I named it that because they're kind of like showing the whole screen. Yeah. Um, and so I grouped them all together there and everything else is API JSON stuff. Yeah, I think that makes sense, right? It keeps it simple and makes it really obvious where you have to go to look at the stuff that's going to be actually rendering blade templates or whatever. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, you said you have a couple screens besides your kind of marketing page and login stuff. There's like a main dashboard screen kind of, right? Where I haven't actually, I don't have an account, so I haven't been in there to look, but can you navigate within that? Are you kind of building like a little mini single page application, like with tabs or anything to switch between stuff since you're kind of sprinkling angular in, or are you still doing full page reloads for some things? Like, is it kind of a mixture depending on? No, I don't think I have any, I use tab, I use bootstrap tabs and I don't think I have any full, uh, full like post back forms that actually do a full post page reload thing. I think every single thing is, um, using the Angular HTTP service to, to make, I, we call it, would you still call them Ajax calls, I guess, yeah. back to the server. So, um, yeah, and no kind of traditional forms. Yeah, I guess I'm, th- I guess I'm thinking of like a uh, forge where you have a couple of your, you have your kind of like server screen, but there's a couple tabs you can go through and do a bunch of stuff. And that's kind of like your server dashboard, which is still just one template, right? But it has this sort of Angular app inside of it. That's sort of like a self-contained thing that only exists on that page. And then there's another one for your sites and stuff like that. And that's worked out as a really solid maintainable strategy for you as for these apps. Yeah, it's not bad. What I do is each tab I have is a blade partial. So I'll have in my dashboard view, I'll have like the blade at include syntax for each tab. There'll be like six or seven of those stacked up and that, that pulls in each tabs view or HTML. And um, yeah, so that, that kind of keeps it. So I don't have like, you know, a 3000 line HTML file with all the tabs. So that splits it up a little bit and keeps it a little bit more manageable. Cool. Uh, was there any particularly interesting challenges or anything that you came across when building Envoyer? Yeah. So the one thing I did on Envoyer a lot better than I did on Forge initially, which I've gone back and improved on Forge a lot um, since I did Envoyer, is how it handles failure cases. Because I tended to, with Forge, I tended to program very optimistically, I feel like, in the sense that it did not handle things going wrong very well. It just kind of left the user hanging. And so like if you were installing a site on your server, but Forge for some reason couldn't SSH into your server, it just showed installing indefinitely. Basically, it never updated. And so, but with Envoy, I programmed a lot more defensively against those failure cases because I had seen how they had kind of bitten me on Forge. And so Envoy handles failure cases like really well. Like I don't think I've ever had something gets stuck on forge and someone not be able to do anything else. I mean, on Envoyer. And so after I did that and saw how well that worked out, I actually went back to forge and implemented like a lot of the same code to handle failure situations and put alerts on the dashboard when something goes wrong and and all that stuff. So that's a a whole lot better. And uh, I definitely learned my lesson there, not, not um, anticipating things to go wrong. 
So what has your kind of strategy been for handling the failure cases? Is it is it just informing the user that something's gone wrong or is there any sort of retry strategy or Yeah, there's a there's a retry strategy where we'll try like three times and then we add on the like just a real technical description, we'll add um, a row to this generic alerts table that has the alert message and kind of like a key that represents that alert message. So like install site or something like that. And then on the front end, I'll use that key to determine what kind of like expanded text to show in the alert modal. So like a, a bigger description of what went wrong. And then we, with Laravel in the queued jobs, uh, functionality in Laravel, you can actually have a failed method on a job that gets called when that particular job fails. So like if the add site job fails within that fail method, I can remove the site that is in the installing status and so that it clears out and it's not just stuck there. So that's kind of how it's handled on the technical side. Awesome. It's it's kind of interesting that both of the services that you've worked on you know, the, the main core of what they do is SSHing into servers and, and doing a bunch of other stuff. Are there interesting challenges there in general? Like how much of the work on those sites is, or on those services is, is doing all this SSH stuff and managing how all that stuff works versus, uh, you know, the user facing side of it? I would say Forge is, I would say they're both about half and half. Um, so one of the challenges with Forge with that SSH stuff is people will provision a server on DigitalOcean and then they will use the DigitalOcean reset root password functionality on the DigitalOcean control panel, which totally hoses Forge's connection because anytime you try to SSH in, it, it asks you for a new password immediately once you do that because it wants you to reset that like that password that they emailed you. And so their server will be prompting for a password when I try to SSH in. That's the most common problem on Forge. And thankfully that I've gotten a lot less of that since I implemented the alerts because it actually shows you the output from your server saying you need to set a new password. So that that's helped a lot. But yeah, I mean, in terms of code base, yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. It is mostly handling all that SSH stuff. And yeah, it's probably, probably half and half to maybe even the majority of the code is handling SSHing in and various scripts that run on those servers. Cool. So, how are you keeping the shell scripts and stuff? <laughs> how are you managing kind of, that stuff in the that's kind of application? So, all of my shell scripts are blade views. That's kind of a unique thing about it. And I inject variables into those views that build out the scripts. That lets me do that lets me do like for each loops and even and if statements using blade syntax in my shell scripts. Okay. Um, so the shell script is fully built out and then I of course can pipe it over to the server, but yeah, that's how they're rendered and prepared is through blade, which actually has been really nice. Like that, that panned out really well. That's pretty clever, right? Because you think of a blade template as being something that generates HTML specifically, but really it's just a way to dynamically generate some sort of output string at the end of the day. Right. So you could, you could generate just about anything with it. Yeah, and that was even the intention when I wrote Blade, with especially in the Laravel 4 and on uh, iteration where you have the engines where you could have like a markdown engine for Blade and inject variables into your markdown and have if statements and for each loops in your markdown getting rendered and stuff like that. So yeah, there's a lot you can do with Blade that may not be obvious when you first look at it, but that can be pretty powerful. That's pretty cool. Uh, is there anything... Any interesting sort of design decisions or design ideas you came across when you were building either of those two apps? Like, you know, for example, people use repositories and stuff like that. Is there anything that you kind of discovered when you were building either Envoy or Forge that made you think, hey, this is kind of cool. This is making things a little bit easier or a little bit more fun. Yeah, I don't know if people will like it, but yeah, (laughs) I, I don't. I think on Forge, I have one repository. On Envoy, I have no repositories. And what I actually have are, I have a trait called retrieves models. And I will put that on a controller. And within that trait, I can say like get site and it will check the logged in user to know if this user can actually access that site. And if they can't, it will, it will throw like a, a 403 forbidden exception or whatever. Okay. And so it's actually super nice. I don't know how that would pan out on all applications, but for the two applications I've built, it's actually really, really slick. And I, I mean, I, I would do it on all my future apps, but yeah, I mean, it's really simple. It's just a, it's just a trait with like 
it has a method for like each kind of, I guess you would say aggregate root uh, entity. So like get project, get um, uh, deployment or get site or whatever. And it checks the that the person is authorized to actually manipulate that site. And if they're not, throw the exception. But if they are, just kind of keep going. So in my controller, what it looks like is, say I have a controller method that takes like an ID, I'll immediately call, you know, this git project and pass the ID. And I know that if if my code is still going, like that this person can access that project. So I don't really have to do any if checks on if they can if they're authorized to manipulate it. That's pretty neat. I've I've tried to solve that same problem a couple different ways in the past and never really landed on something that I was totally satisfied with. I've landed on things where I knew for sure it was the wrong way to do it. Like uh, we tried using repositories a couple times where we were trying to do permissions checks in the repositories, like kind of scoping like the all call. Say you had your, your sites repository right. or something and you wanted to go sites all uh, the repository would have knowledge of who was logged in. And that, that ended up biting us in the ass a little bit because it was just that knowledge, that filtering kind of needs to happen way earlier um, at the end of the day, I can't really say succinctly why, but we just ran into a lot of headaches where it was like, oh man, it'd be really nice to actually be able to retrieve all of them right now instead of just, uh, you know, whoever is logged in. And then yeah. we tried stuff like, um, I think most recently I've been using just uh, controller filters and creating uh, methods in the controller that act as filters, which is like a Laravel feature, right? Um, which has right. worked, worked out okay. It's interesting that you say you are using... Um, like you say, you're getting the ID and then you're retrieving it by the ID. So you're not using like the route model binding or anything? No, not not always. I, I did use that on Forge actually a little bit. And that works pretty well too, actually. Um, but yeah, I, I stuck with the trait this time. And really, I think they're they're almost equivalent in a way. Um, so I, I don't really have a good answer for why I went with the trait over the model binding because I feel like they do kind of do the same thing. But yeah, I mean, so many of my lookups are just like primary key lookups that the repository thing is not really buying me much there just to look up a bunch of uh, things by primary key. Yeah. So yeah, I just went with a, a much simpler approach, really. What are you doing in terms of testing on those two apps? So with Envoyer in particular, I did a lot more kind of high level integration testing. So I'm trying to think how this works, but it basically creates out a whole deployment and, and makes sure it can spin through it all and all that. And I actually feel really good about those tests because I don't even have a lot of like really like low level unit tests on Envoyer. It's more like this higher level, make sure the whole system is working thing. And it's actually really nice and gives me quite a bit of confidence. Whereas I think with previous projects, um, I've done like the, the units can be so granular that like, they're not really telling me anything about the system, like as a whole, like as a whole entity. So it, it's really nice to get kind of those full kind of end to end. And I actually on Envoy, it actually like puts rows in a SQLite light, um, in memory database or whatever, and, you know, actually pulls stuff from the database and checks that everything looks okay. So it's pretty nice. So when you're talking about like a full end to end test with Envoy, are you actually deploying a site to a server as part of the test or is there a boundary somewhere where you're faking it out no it doesn't actually ssh into a remote server um yeah so it doesn't do that and then i think i have a separate test actually that just tests that make sure that we can actually ssh into something um and i think i just have a box actually just sitting out there like a test box yeah five dollar box and just to make sure all that's working kind of just like a sanity check cool so what's kind of the server setup and stuff for Envoy? This is something that's kind of interesting to me because I've never got to the point where I've been able to put something out that has, you know, a fair number of people using it and you have a pretty big audience. So it's always interesting to hear what people can get away with as far as how they're hosting something or how they have things set up and how it's managing to deal with the traffic that they're getting and stuff like that. Honestly, a forge and envoy just run the website just runs on one four gigabyte Linode. So it's not even really a very big setup and the CPU, these are both uh, forge is still a Laravel four app and envoy is a Laravel five app and the CPU on either one of those never goes above like seven or 8%. I mean, on either one of those boxes, like it's really low and, and Forge is, Forge is more heavily trafficked than Envoyer, and it's fairly significantly so, and it never really has any issues. And then I, and then in addition to that, I have the, a database box on each one, and that, of course, has, like, the backups turned on and all that. 
And then I have um, on Forge, I have two worker boxes. I have one worker that's just doing like installing sites and projects and SSL certificates. And the other worker is just doing deployments. And then with Envoyer, I have one deployer box that has like 20 um, daemon workers that handles, of course, all the deployments. And the, the the CPU on that on that worker box is only like 10 or 15%. So it's not very much at all. That's pretty awesome. So Forge is just one web server, two workers, and the configuration for that is kind of dealt with in the actual Forge app itself. So it's kind of deciding what worker to fire off different jobs to based on the type of job. Each actually, it's it's the other way around. The workers decide what queue they're pulling from. Okay. So yeah, yeah. gotcha. And then one database server. So you have four servers yep. total for four Forge. servers. So that sounds pretty affordable. Yeah. So that's four forty dollar a month servers. So yeah, hundred and sixty a month um, to run Forge, and then plus you tack on um, fifty dollars a month for Pusher and fifty dollars a month for um, the two-factor authentication service, which is Authy. So yeah, about both of the services probably cost um, two sixty two sixty for Forge and then two twenty to run Envoyer. That's pretty awesome. It doesn't take much to uh, to cover those costs, I guess, as far as uh, you know how many users and stuff you need to have. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Um, what else was I going to ask you? So we kind of talked about, well, we briefly, you mentioned like the DDD stuff and the, um, command architecture stuff. And we sort of talked about how you built out both of these two apps. What is kind of your thoughts on that stuff in general? Lately, I've been kind of thinking like, I used to be really excited about the idea of DDD as a thing. Cause I think in my head, I thought it meant less than what a lot of people think it means. So I'd be interested to hear what it means to you and what you think about it in general. Um, I, I can appreciate aspects of DV of DDD in terms of um, thinking about the business and talking with stakeholders about the business and making sure that, you know, your language is the same and that you're understanding the problem. Um, on the other hand, I don't think that I work on apps that warrant the kind of architecture that a lot of DDD advocates um, evangelize, I guess you could say. So I don't think I've ever worked on an app that, um, needed a command for every operation in, in the app. Like that would just feel really ridiculous. Um, and you have to, I think it all has to stay in perspective, right? So like forge and Envoyer on the PHP side, or maybe like 14,000 lines of code. I think they're like 10, I think forge is like 12,000 lines of code and Envoyer is probably honestly a little bit less. I wouldn't be surprised if that was more like six or 7,000 lines of code. It's not very much PHP code at all, really. It's, it's probably more Angular code than it is PHP code. Yeah. And I mean, some of these DDD evangelists are working on apps that are half million lines of code or a million lines of code. And that's a whole different ball game in terms of how you need to architect things. And I feel like for most people that I talk to that are using Laravel and what Laravel is kind of geared towards, Laravel... Um, most people I think would be over engineering things to throw everything in a command or use a repository for every single thing they do, or even use a form request for every single validation operation. Like that would just feel ridiculous, I think. So I tend to code really simply with Laravel. And I feel like the way I feel like I try to stay true to like the spirit of Laravel when I code Laravel and I code in a way that kind of reflects that. So yeah, that's why you'll see me, if you look at like my source, you'll see me doing the, this validate right in the controller. You'll see me using eloquent um, a lot because eloquence the greatest. And <laughs> yeah, so I mean, just a very simple approach. I don't do a lot of convoluted stuff. I think uh, obviously it makes sense that you would use you know the features provided by Laravel. Otherwise, you wouldn't want to add them to the framework. But um, it's interesting to talk about the DDD stuff from when you're thinking about an app like Forge or an app like Envoyer because it's. I mean, a lot of the benefits that people talk about are, are things like modeling uh, some domain, right? And and most of these domains that people are modeling are meant to be more real-world business processes or something. But for Forge or Envoy, like your domain is dealing with web servers and deploying things and provisioning things. Like there's not going to be a time where it's not going to be coupled to the web or something, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I, I just don't... I don't know. I just don't do things in a very complicated way. Like when I build my apps, I feel like 
Um, I really stick to the most basic way it can be done. I feel like it's how I try to do it. And I keep kind of refining it until it's sort of simpler and simpler. And that's how I kind of got away from like with forge. I think I, um, that's when I first started doing that kind of trait thing to pull in some models and it just felt so much nicer than having to always inject in two or three repositories, um, just to get a few, a few models out of them. Yeah. So what is kind of your metrics for, you know, good code? What, what makes code good to you? Mm, I keep my methods really small. Um, you can see that even in the Laravel code base, there's not many methods that are more than four or five lines of code. Um, and then of course, just like super readable names on all the method names, really just under, I guess just readability and be able to quickly understand it in a very, um, kind of plain English kind of way of reading the code. So I don't like to name things in a very computery way. And with Laravel 5.1, actually, which comes out in like six weeks, we actually made a change because of that, or I made a change really, where the commands directory is renamed to jobs because I felt like commands was bringing too much DDD baggage with it. You know what I mean? So like people hear commands and they're thinking command bus and they're thinking uh, repositories and uh, doctrine entities that aren't coupled in any ways in theory, to my persistence mechanism and and all that stuff. So I wanted to rename it to jobs, which I think is a lot more um, indicative of what I intended that to be used for, which are jobs that primarily run in the background because I don't feel like most Laravel apps warrant a command bus, at least from my perspective. So I wanted to rename that to um, to just better reflect kind of like the plain English meaning of what that was supposed to be. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that one specifically, because I have a friend who I was talking to uh, today when I was asking him if he had any questions for you. And he, he specifically mentioned that because when 5 came out, he was porting over an app and he was like, oh, commands folder. And he started making commands for, for every single thing. And now he hates his code base. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty funny. It can happen. Like, I mean, you can get kind of carried away with a certain concept and take it to such an extreme that it just like ruins your code. And I mean, I know that we've talked about like DHH has, has said some stuff about this where you kind of get this test-induced design damage and stuff on kind of a different topic of trying to code, like specifically around kind of testing. So yeah, you can kind of get the same thing with the commands where you can really just kind of get this weird Frankenstein of a code base with all like a hundred command classes and stuff. Yeah, I think it's a better name for the folder anyways, because I I think... You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of the motivation for uh, the new folder structure, the new application structure in Laravel 5, was just that there was a lot of things in Laravel 4 that didn't have a home by default. And yeah, that exactly. kind of left people wondering, oh, uh, you know, where do I put my service providers? Uh, do, should I just, and people just start registering bindings in the routes file or something instead because it feels like heavy to create a folder and create a class or something. Uh, yep. Same with the queued jobs, uh, same with the events, you know, any of that stuff. So it's, it's nice now that everything kind of has a home and it, it feels like a really lightweight thing to either create a new service provider or you have, you know, your app service provider by default now, which if you only have a couple of bindings and things aren't going to get out of control, you can kind of use that the way people were using their start file or their, or their routes file even right. uh, in the past. And another change we made with Laravel 5.1, another folder change was, in Laravel 5.0, I want to preface this by saying all of this is backwards compatible. So I don't want people to get scared when they hear this because all the the commands like make command and make handler or handler event and handler command are all still there and all still work the same in 5.1. But um, we renamed, or in Laravel 5, there's the handlers directory. And within that, there's events and commands. And those are intended to be, um, on the command side of things, a separate handler class, totally decoupled from the command itself, of course, and then the command is passed into that handler, which then does some operation. And that is, uh, that just feels really dumb. Like that was really stupid. And I don't saying the people that suggested that are stupid, but just that that is, that's probably one of my biggest dumb things I've ever put in Laravel because it's just so <laughs> totally useless. Like you, you would never, ever want to do that. I feel like for 99.9% of the time. Yeah, like there's no reason have... for the command handler to exist without the command. Right. So you might as well just, and they're not even commands, right? We're talking about, 
it's a queued job. You push something. Yeah, on it's queue a queued job. And this class is going to get executed on one particular method. Like you're only calling one method on that class in the first place. So to split that up into two classes now, it's just yes. Yeah, exactly. That is so dumb. And so anyway, we renamed that to just listeners. And uh, there's no command handlers. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't even. I mean, there are in the sense that all the code to support that is still there for yeah. backwards compatibility's sake. But I'm not talking about that anymore. Like that's not in the documentation. <laughs> I'm not advertising that. Um, and so within that directory is just event listeners because, you know, that makes sense. And we renamed it to listeners instead of handlers. So it's just where your event listeners go. And it's actually so much better of a setup, like just playing with it. Um, it just makes a lot more sense to have the jobs folder and then the listeners folder. And there's no convoluted command handler business to kind of overcomplicate things. And you don't get, and you don't even have that command language to even bring that baggage of, over-engineering and um, command-busting every single thing that your blog is doing or whatever. Yeah, totally. So with the changes that you made to how queued jobs work in Laravel 5 in general, especially with like the self-handling stuff, um, I noticed like the Laravel 4 way is still there, right? Where you can queue a job by specifying the name of the class and then passing like a bag of the data that's going to get passed to the handle method. But I also noticed that that's not in the Laravel 5 documentation. Um, Is that something that you're still planning on keeping around or do you really prefer the way that you're doing it now where you're instantiating a queue job and passing the data into the constructor? No, it will definitely still be around because actually the, the Laravel 5... Um, the way of passing kind of objects onto the queue is built on top of that Laravel four, classic Laravel 4 queue code. So actually what happens when you push a command in Laravel 5, we actually use the Laravel 4 syntax, but the handler we push is like um, illuminate queue, call queued command or something like that. And then we pass that bag of data into that, which then marshals up the class and calls it. So yeah, it's all kind of built on top of the the kind of more simple um I guess if you want to say way of handling queue jobs and kind of just is another layer on top of that. So yeah, it's actually not even possible to remove the layer <laughs> without before a really style serious doing refactoring. It. Yeah, without basically rewriting the whole queue. And plus, I don't even want to do that because that Laravel four way of doing queues is fine. You can even push closures onto queues. So I'm kind of conflicted, honestly, myself because I played around with the Laravel five way a bit and. The biggest benefit that I saw with that was you're not using like a string class name anymore, right? You're passing like a real right. PHP object. You're not going to make some stupid typo and some, and all of a sudden these things aren't going to be connected, right? Which is kind of a classic opportunity for mistakes with event listeners and everything, right? If you're just passing around strings and you make one has a period in between two words and one doesn't, then you don't really have any feedback that things aren't working until you go and look at your database and this, you know, event that was supposed to be fired that was supposed to save something extra didn't do it or whatever. And the actual code itself, you're not going to get an error or anything. Right. Um, so there was that benefit, which I thought was, was good. But the problem that I had was, um, I ran into situations where I needed a dependency in a, in a job that couldn't be automatically resolved from the IOC container. Cause maybe it was like a path that was a string or something. Uh, so it, I couldn't type hint it so the container couldn't resolve it. So right. when you're doing it the Laravel five way, your dependencies get injected into the handle method, right? Instead of into the right. constructor, cause you're using the constructor for the data and you can't at least maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I couldn't figure out a way to tell it how to pass the stuff into the handle method. Yeah. I can see your issue there because you can't, you're saying you can't app bind because that would, that would, mess with the that would control the constructor but since it's not injecting in the constructor you can't really yeah control how to inject stuff in there yeah i see what you're saying so yeah you probably would have to do something you probably would have to use like a laravel 4 style yeah. or like a classic style q job for that so that's what i've been doing and i i've still been happy with it especially uh you know if we're targeting php 5.5 plus so we just use that class syntax thing so it doesn't feel like there's a big yeah. opportunity for a a string, uh, you know, typo error or anything anymore anyways. So it still feels like even though, you know, that just resolves to be a string, ultimately, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like I'm passing something real in there. You know what I mean? That's nice. Yeah. I like that. That, um, that class constant thing is really nice. It's like the best feature of PHP 5.5 and it's the stupidest little thing. 
I swear, <laughs> like the the best contributions I've made to PHP, at least the what engaging by people's reaction to them, are like always the smallest little things, like the DD function in Laravel. When I tweeted, when I tweeted that that was using the Symphony var dumper and showed that like color coded output, it got like three hundred retweets <laughs> or something like that. I tweet about something like actually more substantial, like a substantial amount of work. It might be like fifteen retweets. Nobody cares. Like they only care about like the DD and stupid stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, it's funny, right? Like to me, like that uh, colon colon class thing, that's yeah. like as monumental of a change as the short array syntax was for PHP 5.4. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And I wish like all everyone's all obsessed with the scalar type ins, but I'm like, can we get some shorthand closures in the PHP house, please? <laughs> because I mean... You know what? That's the only thing that I, I really love when I look at the hack documentation. They yeah. have those short, uh, you know, they call them lambdas, but they have that short closure syntax that doesn't need the use statement, which is yeah. like the worst thing ever. So Especially sick. when you're jumping just, back and forth between JavaScript and PHP and you always forget to add the use. <laughs> yeah, and in Laravel, you can't go like four lines without a closure. Yeah, totally. And so it, it would be really nice to have something like that. Yeah, definitely. Or, I mean, I've seen some proposals that you know didn't go anywhere or maybe just people talking about like short object literal syntax for PHP, like a short associative array so mm, yeah it would look more like a javascript object or something but little things like that it's funny how, how the tiny things that you use a million times are what you care about more than you know big massive changes like i think like you know generators and stuff in php 5.5 that's cool but i've never really used them no i've never used that I used uh, variadic functions for the first time like the other day, and that was actually yep. pretty awesome. Yeah, that is cool, and I have used that, and it's actually it's quite a bit faster than doing the old call user funk array, especially if you're d doing it like in a loop or quite a, quite a few times. Yeah, for sure. So it's funny that we talk about that because related to the whole good code thing, I've been finding lately that for me, the things that I'm most interested in improving are just all the little small decisions that you make when you're writing code, not like what is my big architecture? How are all these things going to exist and communicate? But you know, what should this method be called? What order should these parameters be in? Um, how can I extract this uh, complex conditional into something with a better name? And I'm finding that just the sum of all these tiny micro decisions is what really ends up giving you a quality code base that's easy for people to work with and easy to understand yeah. and i've worked on projects in the past where people have tried to do this complicated stuff but they don't have a handle on that small decision making yet yeah. so no matter what you do at the large scale as soon as you kind of zoom in on something it's still a total mess right yeah. So I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, yeah. And one, I can give one example in the Laravel code base. And I think I've said it on other podcasts. A very small thing we do is we never make you pass a Boolean flag into a method. And it's just because it's absolutely impossible to tell what that means from the consuming side. And there's actually one instance in Laravel, I think, where you have to post, pass a Boolean flag. And that is... Where, password remember, I think. Yeah. Password where if you want them to remember the login. Yeah. But... It's kind of a unique case because usually when you're passing that, you're passing input has remember me. And so it actually is a little bit more readable. You usually, you're usually not passing like a hard-coded true into that method. You're passing like a, a, an input value. But that's the only one I can think of. And that contributes a lot to readability because there's so many libraries where like I have to pass like null, false, 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 true, true, false, null into the method. And it's just so stupid. There was a recent PHP 7 proposal or something for uh, default parameter values. So if you wanted to skip a parameter, you could use the default keyword. So instead of having yeah. to look up the function definition and be like, oh, am I supposed to pass null here? Or is it an empty array? Or is it yeah, whatever? You could just nice. put default. But it didn't get through. And I, th I think the reason is because that's a kind of a Band-Aid solution to... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like I know people want named parameters, right? Which makes it a little bit easier because then you can you don't have to worry about parameter order and a, a boolean flag. All of a sudden, at least has a name associated with it. But yeah, uh, definitely, I don't know if that's ever actually going to make it in. Yeah, um, hope for the best. One other thing I was just going to ask you about in general is how do you find uh, you know just working alone on all this stuff all the time? Like you work from home, right? You got these two apps that you maintain. You work full time on Laravel, which is, you know, a crazy popular, busy project. Um, how do you 
manage all that? Do you ever wish that uh, you were working on these things with another developer or at an office somewhere? Or, you know, how do you find that fits your personality? You know, the nice thing is that I, a lot of times feel like I am working on it with other developers because I keep in touch with quite a few people um, on a regular basis. So like just to name a few, I mean, I keep, I keep in touch with um, some of my old workmates. Um, I keep in touch with like uh, Jeffrey way. And I have these people like on telegram, like on IM, right. So that I can, we talk quite a bit every day. So Jeffrey and Matt Stalfer, and even I have you on telegram and they, I feel like they kind of indulge me a little bit when I get excited about an idea and I'll like, I'll ping them and tell them the idea. And it kind of gives me that feeling of working on something with someone else. And I'm, because I'm not like, containing um, all of that within myself and just kind of bottling it up. And I can kind of like share that excitement with other people. And I'm, I don't know if that gets annoying to them or not, but anyway, it's just kind of, it's just kind of nice that they indulge letting me kind of like bounce those ideas off them, um, you know, on a daily basis. So that's actually really nice. If I didn't have that and kind of that small network of people that I sort of chat with on a regular basis that I could imagine getting pretty lonely um, because I don't, in Arkansas, where I live, there's there's not a big um, tech scene. So, like, I don't have a big meetup I can go to every week and, and talk to other developers. And we we had, actually do have our first um, – we had our first Laravel meetup back in um, December, and we've had our second one since. And that's pretty cool, but the, the people are so spread out that people come from, like, hours away um, to meet in Little Rock, which is the capital. So it would be pretty lonely if I didn't have kind of a network of people on IM that I can chat with. How do you find just, you know, programming solo? I know for me, I feel like I'm way more productive if I'm sitting next to someone programming, even if it's just so I can say what I'm thinking about doing out loud and just see a head nod or a weird reaction or just something to validate a decision that I'm making. And even working remotely now, I feel like I get way more done when I just have someone on screen hero on the other end. So I don't feel stupid saying things out loud. Um, and I used to think I was like a really introverted person, but I'm starting to think now that maybe I'm not as introverted as I thought, but how do you find working on stuff in isolation? Do you get, you know, pretty quick feedback on like, actual low-level bits of code that you're writing or is that just not something that is really important to you um i don't get a lot of feedback on that anymore um one thing i did miss working remotely when i worked at userscape was the whiteboard experience where if you have an idea you can draw it out on a whiteboard and i think that you know, it just makes discussions go so much faster when you can kind of bounce an idea off someone and kind of draw it out on the board. That's that's the one thing I miss the most about working in isolation is being able to do that. Because there were there were many times where probably an hour long discussion could have been shortened to just five or ten minutes because we could so much it's so much easier to get your point across kind of in person talking to someone and drawing something out on a whiteboard. So, uh, other, but since, since I worked by myself now, like apart from userscape on my own projects, I don't really have, um, I haven't really done that a lot and for better or worse. Um, so yeah. When you, uh, I know you've talked before about, you know, the job that you used to have before you worked at userscape was kind of where you gained a lot of your experience and learned from a lot of the other guys there how to, you know, program the way that you do now. That's true, right? I'm not making that up. Yeah, that's that's pretty true. Like when I was at my my job before um, Userscape was with a company at the time, it was called um, Datatronics, which was Arkansas Best Freight's um, programming wing. And now it's renamed to ArcBest Technologies. But when I got there, I did not know how to program. I graduated from Arkansas Tech University, but my degree was really in more like computer networking stuff and hardware and stuff like that. And I, I only had two semesters of C++, which is just kind of like the standard for that that degree and the most minimum you had to take, basically. And so when I got to ABF, thankfully they had like a six-month training program, but they taught me like uh, three months of it was like COBOL and JCL, and then the other half was classic ASP. And then because only a few teams worked on .NET, well, I was just so lucky to get assigned to one of those like three or four teams that works on .NET. And when I got there, I did not know what an interface was. I did not know about any of these solid principles or anything like that. So, and actually they, they did, which was nice and taught me a lot about really just basic object-oriented programming stuff. So what was the actual development experience like there as far as how the training went? Were you working alone and then getting review or were you doing a lot of pairing and 
working on stuff with other people and seeing how they did stuff or what was, you know, what made that a great learning opportunity? Um, it was some of both. It was, it, it was actually kind of a traditional classroom style. So like we all basically sat in like a small classroom for six months, more or less. And there was probably like 10 of us that were new hires and we had a, a teacher and they would kind of rotate in different people to teach different subjects like COBOL or classic ASP or JCL or whatever. And, um, we would have exercises and sometimes we would kind of review each other's and talk about each other's. And the, the teacher would of course review everyone's code and look at it. Cause there's not that many students in there. So, um, you got a lot of feedback that way, but the way, I mean, once I got out of that class, that taught me like the basics of programming, you know, like loops and if statements and all that. And then once I got out of that class, I was with, um, some really talented people just like in my area of five or six people, like my department. And we did a lot of like, um, code review and talking about the best approach to things. And I mean, sometimes probably we're a little too far on like the architecture astronaut side of things, but I think it was good for me at the time because I, I needed that exposure to like really, um, kind of theory academic based discussion about programming. And it helped set a really good foundation for later, I think. And then informed a lot of my decisions when I kind of, kind of came back to being more of, I guess you could say like a pragmatic programmer that does very pragmatic solutions to things. Um, so yeah, it was a good experience. That's awesome. Yeah. Kind of education in the programming world has been a, an interesting thing for me to think about. Like I went to college for uh, a year of computer science, but I went right after high school and was just burnt out and needed to take some time off to kind of figure out what I wanted to do and ended up going back to college for software engineering eventually. But the things that they kind of teach you in school are not really the things that you end up doing, you know, outside of school. We did yeah. object-oriented programming and C++. And the way they teach object-oriented programming is, I mean, I'm only just in the last maybe year really realizing how not object-oriented programming or, or, or how they focused on totally the wrong things. Like they're telling you like, you know, we have an automobile class and a car is an automobile and a truck is an automobile. And, you know, it's all about inheritance right. and, and all this stuff right. and nothing about, uh, you know, mixing state and behavior or how things communicate between different layers or how you uh, invert your dependencies or, or you know, there was not a really anything in there about design. So when I kind of stumbled upon that stuff on my own, it was like, wow, this is like so exciting. It makes it so much more interesting. I actually kind of understand what I'm doing. Like I remember having such stupid questions in school, like, you know, how do I talk from my data access layer to my business logic layer? Like how do those things communicate? Do they pass strings back and forth to each other? Like I'm envisioning like layers of a cake and somehow they have to communicate. And it's like, it's, it's now it seems so silly. Right. But I was like actually yeah. stumped on that stuff when I was back in school. And, you know, we learned like SVN instead of Git and stuff. And I, I, I just wonder what the best way for people to learn this stuff would actually be if you actually wanted to go somewhere and, and have it have it taught to you because i know even the universities here like the really prestigious uh computer science school that we have in the area it's computer science degree that's it's not a practical real world building business applications degree so i don't know yeah those the business applications and the the kind of the computer science applications of programming can be pretty different my future could have been so different man like I, when i first when i was a senior in college I did not, I, my goal was not necessarily to be a programmer or even to mess with computers at all. Like I was still, I was like in this weird stage where I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And at the time, like I was very much, um, even skeptical of like technology in general, if I wanted that to be a part of my life. So like, I didn't have a smartphone. I didn't have home internet. Even when I started working at ABF, I did not even have home internet because it just was not, that's just not like how I was. And I would actually just drive to the coffee shop and sit in the parking lot if I needed to do anything on the internet. Like I never programmed on the side. I didn't know anything about any of that stuff. And then, yeah, I mean, I remember when I was a senior, I actually applied like not even for programming jobs. Like I applied to be like the manager of like a hotel and like, <laughs> and like no joke. One of the jobs I applied for was to be the manager of a nursing home. I'm not joking. <laughs> wow. And thank thankfully it just worked out, you know, so different, but it could have been, a totally different story for me, I feel like. But thankfully, this company that I started working for, it wasn't necessarily like the best tech environment in the world. There's a lot of legacy COBOL and .NET crap, but their training program literally like changed my entire future and in the sense that it got me interested in programming. Yeah. But in terms of what would be good for today, like I think people like Jeffrey Way 
are making a pretty big impact on people with Laracast because they have so much material and it's presented so well and it's so practical. And then I think if you could combine something like Laracast with like a mentor, like a one-on-one friend that you had, that's almost like the best combination I feel like because you learn so much more if you have someone that you can just talk to and ask questions of anytime. And then you have the extra reinforcement of these digestible videos that are just like, some of them are only, you know, four or five minutes long to teach you some things. So yeah, that's really awesome. Sometimes I wonder if programming like real world programming should be like an apprenticeship, not uh, something that you go and get a diploma or a degree for. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's yeah. how I learned the most. Looking back, that's how I learned the most was when I was working with a s- other small group of people. So would you say that you're satisfied in your career as a programmer now and you think you made the right decision? <laughs> oh gosh. I can't even imagine if I didn't become a programmer. Yeah, it totally. And it's such like, it's become such like a passion. I didn't know that I would have like when I was in college programming did not sound interesting to me because I don't feel like it was, I don't feel like I got a fair representation of what programming could be. And I'm not sure at the time, even, I mean, all this GitHub and open source stuff, this was back in like 2006 or so. I mean, Rails had only been out for a year. GitHub wasn't even around. And so, I mean, a lot of this open source kind of frenzy and all that and kind of the the trendiness of it, I think, came after. So I can't really blame, um, you know, some of my teachers for not like exposing me to that because a lot of it really didn't exist. But yeah, I didn't know what programming could be in the sense of working with a community of people all around the world, building these cool open source tools to build whatever you want with. What do you think gives you the most satisfaction in programming? Is it, you know, making the computer do interesting things? Is it a creative outlet for figuring out how to get something to do this or how, or how to get an end result? Or is it uh exciting for you to build these businesses or is it a combination of all of them or I wouldn't say I'm really interested in making the computer do things I'm only interested in uh, the most satisfaction for me is basically making people's lives better whether that's they use Laravel to build their client websites and they can feed their family and work for themselves or whatever and it works out great for them or um you know it makes them um excited about programming or kind of like sparks someone's imaginations to build their own product because that was really the whole goal of Laravel was to make it easy to build your own project as a single programmer. So basically if you had an idea, you could take it from idea to fruition as easy as possible. That's why we tried to make things like authentication and all that stuff. So easy is so that one, basically one person can take their idea and try to turn it into a self-sustaining business that basically supports whatever they like to do in life, travel the world or just stay home with their family and work from home or whatever they want to do. Awesome. So is there anything else you want to talk about or anything else you're excited about right now? Active record. Active record. Dude, I'm always excited about active record. I've been working on, I've been staying up till like one in the morning working on my active record tattoo design every single night. (laughs) Dude, I I would so get an active record tattoo. I I think (laughs) I would. In Amsterdam, we need to get active record tattoos. All right. Maybe that will be what happens for sure. Um, Are you working on anything cool that you're able to talk about or is it typical Taylor Outwell secrets still? I really am. I'm really excited about what I'm working on, but like I always have this fear that it's going to crash burn and I will have told everyone about it and they will make fun of me to my death basically that (laughs) I never delivered on this one specific thing but actually this is this what I'm working on I will say is not a paid service like Forge or Envoy it is a open source thing it's a code thing Um, so it's not something that you're going to have to pay for anything like that so I don't want to wear people out and think oh Taylor's cranking out another paid service because it's not like that at all and honestly I'm gosh I'm just as excited if not more excited about this than I was with Envoy. Like, I feel like it could be so big, like game-changingly big, and I hope it can deliver um, like I think it can. I feel like I've oversold it already, but really, <laughs> I, th- I feel like it's really cool. Awesome, man. Well, uh, do you, when do you think you're going to be able to tell people about this thing? Hmm. Um, I'm working on it all week. I'm probably neglecting my GitHub issues. I saw they're up to like 40 uh, <laughs> GitHub issues. That's but still pretty awesome for a, yeah, a project yeah, that as popular is pretty as Laravel. Good. But yeah, I mean, I'm hoping this week I can at least know if this is going to fail or if it's going to succeed. And then I feel more comfortable like leaking out things. But I feel like this is so 
honestly, gosh, this sounds bad, but I feel like this is so big. Like it's going to have to have like the right marketing behind it to really, <laughs> I can't just throw it out there and be like, here's a GitHub repo. Like this has to actually be like branded and like have this kind of whole persona behind it. So it's going to take, I, even if I finish the whole project, like say I finish it this week, which I don't know if that will happen, but I think it will still take like a few more weeks to really get that kind of stuff ready. Sure. Awesome, man. Well, I'm super excited to hear what that will be. And I'm sure everyone listening is going to be all riled up and, you know, yeah, it's going to crash. It's going to crash now. I've way overdone <laughs> oh, it. Man. Well, we it's, can I've cut this part it. out if you want. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. So uh, is there anything else you want to plug or anything else you want to mention before we uh, finish up? Uh, you know, just, uh, you know, the Laravel podcast, stay tuned to that. Um, if you're into podcasts, which you've, you've made it through an hour of us talking, you might want to check out the Laravel podcast. Uh, also the Laravel Slack channel. If you're into Laravel, um, I think it's, let's see, it is Larachat. Basically just Google Larachat, Larachat dot, Larachat dot co. Sorry. Is the, you can sign up to get involved in this Laravel Slack channel. There's like hundreds of people in there. So if you, if you like Laravel and you want to chat with other people that like Laravel, definitely join that. But, um, yeah, that's kind of my two things. Awesome. So, uh, what's the best way for people to kind of follow what you're doing or get in touch? Well, you can always email me at um, taylor at laravel.com. I, you know, I get, I don't even get that many emails, like personal emails. I maybe get like one or two a week. Um, so you can email me or follow me on Twitter at, at Taylor Otwell and on GitHub. I, I don't really have any personal GitHub stuff. It's all on Laravel. So yeah, mainly Twitter and then just plain old fashioned email. Awesome, man. Well, this has been a super fun conversation. Thank you so much for coming on and giving me your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. So um, show notes for this episode are going to be found at fullstackradio.com slash episodes slash 14, I believe. And if you can rate and review the show on iTunes, that's awesome. Uh, thanks again to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. They've been sponsoring us for a while now, and it's been going great. And uh, yeah, so if you have any suggestions for topics or guests or anything, reach out on Twitter or uh, via email. You can find the information on my Twitter account and, and on the Full Stack Radio website. And let me know what you think. So see you next time. Thanks.